Lord, let's pray. Lord, as we read and consider this portion of your holy word, let your voice be heard by your people. From week to week, we hear many things from many worldly voices. We've come to hear now from the living God. So renew a right spirit within us. Help us to take heed how we hear. Take the meager scraps of this poor minister and do a spirit work of multiplication that our hearts and minds may be fed richly from the bounty of your word. Come to us, we pray, for the sake of Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Our text is Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. Hear God's word. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing and now the proclamation of his word. You remember where we are in the middle of this first section of Romans as he begins to lay out the the whole gospel of Jesus Christ that he established early on in the first part of chapter 1. He's going to go through the, the doctrine of sin here in these first few chapters, and then he'll get to the doctrine of justification by faith and sanctification, glorification, what it looks like to live in the world as a Christian. But right now we are sort of camped out in these first few chapters on sin and And it all originated out of that verse 17 of chapter 1. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, And so he he sort of began his discussion of sin, of, of convincing his readers of their need for an alien righteousness because of their sin. He began that discussion in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Uh addressing the pagan, godless people, those who uh, willingly refused to acknowledge God. God had revealed himself in creation and on their consciences, and they continually turned to themselves and their own idols and pride, and God gave them over to those lusts. Then, as he worked his way through all the different lusts to which he gave them and how bad they really were, he turns in chapter 2, verse 1, to address the religious people in the room, as it were. Remember, we've talked about this, how, how the religious people, the, the Jews, particularly in Paul's day, 
Maybe they'd come into the Christian church already, but as they listened to Paul talk about these pagans who are godless and sinful and are full of sexual immorality and strife and, and hatred and haughtiness and, and disobedience, they're nodding their heads along. And they get to chapter 2 and Paul says, Therefore you, speaking to the Jews, have no excuse, because you judge, and in passing judgment you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. Whether those very same things were on the outward part of their life or on the inward part of their life, we don't know specifically what was going on. But Paul says enough to condemn them in that same sin that he had articulated about these pagans. And, you know, it can seem, I don't know, I suppose somebody could read this and think it seems kind of mean for Paul to just be, you know, ragging on all these people and wagging his finger at them at how sinful they are. But don't forget Paul's purpose as he's writing this first part of Romans. He is trying to convince us all that we are without excuse. Without righteousness, we will not be spared in God's judgment. And none of us, not a single one of us, have any righteousness of our own. As he gets into chapter 2, remember he, um, he looks to this religious person that he's addressing there in verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think that you're going to get through God's judgment unscathed if you're doing the exact same things that all these godless pagans are doing? And he goes on to, to show them in verses 4 and 5 that that if they are not embracing the gracious offer of the gospel, then they are presuming on God's patience and kindness. God is patient with us because He wants us to repent of our sin. That's what Paul told us at the end of verse 4. He wants us to confess that, that we have thought little of Him. He wants us to confess that we have presumed upon His grace. He wants us to turn from our sin and, and flee to Christ for salvation. And this is why He's patient with us. Because He knows how, how long it takes sometimes. And He wants us to turn to the Gospel. And at the very end of verse 5, Paul referred to the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And it is that judgment that Paul now turns to in verses 6 through 11. On that day of judgment that's coming, it's in Paul's mind now that he's mentioned it in verse 5, and so in 6 through 11, he explains to us how exactly God's judgment works. Look at verse 6 to start with. He, referring to God, he will render to each one according to his works. All right, so if you're paying attention, that should throw you off just a little bit. Okay? This doesn't quite sound like the gospel, does it? God is going to give to all of you according to your works. That's where we all get into the fetal position and cower with fear. That doesn't quite sound like what Paul says in so many other places in his writings. It doesn't sound like what we've heard in the Gospels and in the proclamations and promises of the Old Testament. 
But it is, in fact, a truth that is taught all across Scripture. That God judges according to works. One, just one place worth noting, and you could go all sorts of places in the Gospels and find this. You can go other places in the Old and New Testaments and find this. But listen to Jesus in Matthew 16. He says, The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Paul's really just repeating what Jesus Himself has said during His earthly public ministry. He's not teaching anything new or novel in verse 6. In the end, according to Jesus and Paul and plenty of other biblical writers, Everyone will give an account before God. Your life will be measured according to the things you have done. Now, why does Paul say this? Well, on the one hand, because it's true, which we'll look at a little bit more. But it's really, really important for us to remember the context in which Paul is writing. Really, really, for us to remember the context of the letter and the purpose of Paul's writing. Paul is seeking to convince you and me that we need a Savior. He is wanting us to realize that we can't trust in the outward emotions of religion. We can't trust in, in our good intentions to save us from the judgment of God. He is trying to convince us that we have no righteousness in ourselves, no works that will save us. He wants us to come to a place of desperation, a place where we will plead for the mercy of God. And so when it is presented in Christ, we will quickly run to it. And so because of this, he he reminds you that it is your own works that determine the judgment that God will render over you. Think of it. We sometimes can get stuck as Christians thinking that because we are in union with Christ, and we are, that in the judgment day, we're simply going to sort of pass through. But the Scriptures reflect that on the judgment day, even Christians, all your works will be exposed Everything that you've done outside of Christ, everything that you've done in Christ, both good and bad, sinful and not, everything will be exposed. And God will render judgment on those things. Now the question in the judgment day is where does that judgment fall? If you are judged evil and wicked, destined for hell, is that penalty met in you or met in Christ? Now that's where the penalty is disposed is different from what Paul is talking about. God will render judgment upon all of us. How will you do? I mean, you've got to know that that question is coming, right, as we talk about these things, and especially as we get into these next few verses, and there's two types of people that exist in the world. The question is going to come to you tonight, which type of person are you? How will you stand in the judgment of God on our own apart from Christ? None of us have any hope in the judgment if God will indeed render to each one according to his works. Listen, it is, it is from the judgment of God that each of us needs saving, right? 
That's Paul's whole point in this whole section. You will not stand in the judgment of God. You need saving from the judgment of God. And so what this means is that here in verse 6, Paul, he's not talking about how we are saved from God's judgment. He's not talking about salvation. He is still here in verse 6 trying to convince you that you need salvation, you see. As Paul declares to you that he will render to each one of you according to your works by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it ought bring you to your knees in pleading again for mercy from God that he will receive Christ in your stead and pardon you for his sake. Ligon Duncan, um, and I've been thinking about this. I have several notes from Ligon in my notes tonight, um, simply because Ligon is one of the only people I have found that's going as slow as I'm going through Romans. So um, it's easy to read him because he's a little more detailed. Ligon says this, salvation is by grace. That's Paul's emphatic point throughout the book of Romans. But judgment is by works. Judgment is by works. Paul says three things here in verse 6. One, that God's judgment is universal. Don't miss it. He will render to who? To each one. That is to, to everyone in the world. Everyone will be judged. Secondly, God's judgment is according to the work of the individual. That when judgment comes, the criteria for life or death is according to the works of the one being judged, whether they've been good or evil. And thirdly, there in 6, the judgment will be certain and effective. It's those first few words. He will render to each person according to their works. It's something that we cannot escape. You can't get away from it. You're not going to get to that day and God's going to say, oh yeah, yeah, you, you don't have to be here for this. Every single one, according to your works, not somebody else's. You're not going to be judged by how good your children were or how, how good your parents were or your grandparents before them. And whatever the judgment is will be effective and certain. And so the question is here before us, with this judgment coming, with judgment like that, what will you do? The wages of your sin is the wrath of God on that day of judgment. Paul wants his readers, and he wants you, to grasp the great trouble that is coming if you reject the gospel. Yes? If, if his goal is to convince us that we need the gospel, here, his method is to show you what it will be like if you reject it. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of you are gospel rejectors. I hope that most of us, even in this room, have, have heeded Paul's words to some degree or another and have come to Christ for deliverance. And I know most of you in here, and I'm thankful that you have a good profession and testimony. But still, all of God's word is profitable, even if you've already come to the gospel. That's supposed to be a little tongue-in-cheek for what it's worth. 
let the impression of the text rest on you for even a moment. You need a shelter from God's wrath. Every single one of us. You need mercy from the judge or you have no hope at all. And so from here, Paul moves on to describe two types of people. Now, there's a lot of discussion in Reformed scholarship surrounding the identities of these two types of people. And so first we're going to identify who they are, and then we'll look and see what Paul says about them. The first type of person is described in verses 7 and 10. The key to identifying them is the end of verse 7. They will be given eternal life. Well, the only people that are given eternal life are those who have believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's one type of person that Paul is talking about in 7 and 10 is a believer. Not someone who has been good in the ways that these verses describe and so has earned eternal life. That's not what he's saying. But someone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus for salvation and who's been given a godly heart and a goodly inheritance in the Lord, namely eternal life. The second type of person that Paul describes is in verses 8 and 9. Again, the key to identifying them is their destiny. Where are they headed? And it's there at the end of verse 8. It's, it's, it's sort of carrying on a thought from verse 7. By implication, they will not have eternal life, but rather will be, will be given or will have wrath and fury. This is the person who has refused to believe the gospel. They've trusted in self and have loved sin. They've rejected God and they've rejected his mercy. It may even be a very religious looking person who has trusted instead in their own works of perceived religious righteousness instead of resting in Christ by faith. And these will receive their due punishment. So this is who we're dealing with. Two types of people in verses 7 through 10. There's, there's what we might call the patient well-doers, according to verse 7, versus the, the self-seekers of verse 8. You have the good and the evil, the godly and the wicked. You have those who are destined for eternal life and those who are destined for wrath and fury. You have those who are um, redeemed by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, redeemed through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, pardon me, who've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, who are living lives of godliness and goodness. And then you have those on the other side who are unbelievers who still refuse to believe with all of the revelation that he's made of himself. They refuse to believe God and acknowledge his existence and they reject his promises of salvation in Christ. We're going to look at these two types of people. Let's look at these patient well-doers first. Look at verse 7 and then verse 10. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Verse 10, describing them, uh, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first, and also the Greek. Just for a moment, I want to work through some of these characteristics that he lists and, and make sure that we understand what he's talking about. This idea of patience and well-doing, is, uh, it should communicate to us the idea of perseverance in good works or perseverance in producing good works. 
Um, th- this idea in verse 7 that, it, that this person seeks for, uh, what is it, glory and honor and immortality. At first, that can look a little um, anti-Christian, really. I thought we were supposed to be humble and recognize our, our finitude before a holy God. Yes, of course, it, the, the glory and honor and immortality uh, have certain uh, emphases. You know, glory is a word that's used by Paul in other places even to speak about the goal or, or the end of a believer's expectation. So as, a, as we live our lives as Christians, we're moving toward that point where we will be fully conformed to the image of God's Son, where we will be, um, as it were, glorying in Him, or maybe, just to use a word from the order of salvation, we'll be glorified in heaven with Him. We're going to get to a point where we look like Christ because of the sanctification that's been accomplished. We're, we seek glory. We also seek honor. It's a word that's meant to contrast um, with the way the world treats Christians. Right? The, the Scriptures teach and we experience that Christians are met with reproach in the world. But we ought to seek after honor. But, but whose honor? Certainly not the honor of this world. Not the recognition of, of sinful, wicked mankind. But we seek the honor of Christ and the honor of God. The, the, the gracious approbation that will be ours one day and that is ours even now as we live in this world. The, the idea of immortality, your Bible might say um, incorruption, is simply pointing us to that resurrection day. When one day, yes, we will experience physical death, but beyond that day, all of us will rise again in Christ and never die again. There's an immortality that we are yearning for as we walk with God. Verse 10 repeats a couple of these and adds a third. Peace there in verse 10. And John Murray writes this about this word. He says, this term needs to be given its its widest scope as embracing the fruits of reconciliation on the highest scale of realization. And so he defines it like this. Peace with God and peace of heart and mind in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. So that idea of peace speaks certainly to all of the many blessings that we have in Christ. To that peace that we have with God in terms of the enmity that we used to have with Him. But now it has been, we have been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. But also a peace of heart and mind that we don't live with a sense of guilt anymore. Because we know that the things that we still struggle with and that still torment us have been paid for in Christ. And so we move forward living a life of godliness and peace because of what has been done for us. In this description of a believer, Paul seems to say, if you would allow me to summarize, that a Christian seeks after a lifestyle of godliness and goodness. Ligon Duncan again, he says it's important here to pay attention to what Paul has not said. This is what he writes. Paul has not said that this person has earned his salvation by these good deeds. Nor has he said that this person has earned his salvation by these aspirations or by these desires. But he has said the person who has met Christ in the gospel and embraced him by faith, 
is a person who is characterized by these kinds of aspirations, by this kind of life. He is saved by grace, but his life is also transformed by that grace so that his desires are different from the world and his life is different from the world. And so in a moment, we're going to talk about how Paul is using the distinction of these two types of people. But right here in the moment, it is significant and important for us to let this be a challenge to us and an encouragement to us that this is what a Christian looks like, that Christians are, are destined for eternal life, that life begins here and now, right? We're not just waiting till we die and doing whatever we want in the midst of it. Paul says that's presuming on God's kindness. He says a, a Christian, those who are in Christ, those who have not rejected the gospel, but the rest in the mercy of God, walk like Christians. So we pursue godliness and we love the Lord and we trust his promises and we do good and we have peace. The contrasting individual is the self-seeker of verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Self-seeking, I don't know what your translation says, maybe it says selfishness, that would be a good, a good word there. In the middle of seven, there's these two contrasting points that connect to each other. This disobedience, uh, in the middle of eight, excuse me. These, they do not obey the truth on the one hand, but they obey on righteousness instead. One commentator says they, they, they give themselves in obedience to unrighteousness rather than the truth. Paul here describes opposite sides of the same coin. These people are refusing to subject themselves to the truth as God has revealed it and prefer rather to give themselves over to unrighteousness. So it's not just that they have a distaste for God's truth. It's in fact that they hate God's truth and love unrighteousness. They refuse to obey what God has given and instead choose to obey whatever they've devised in their own minds and hearts. It says they do evil in verse 9 and they are given over to, to tribulation and distress. What's Paul saying? Well, first it's important to note there are only two types of people in the world. Only two. In verse 6, he says he's going to render to each one, that is, that is meant to be universal to everybody, and then he describes two kinds of people. You don't fall outside of those two kinds of people. You're in one category or another. And you, I mean, I told you the question was coming. Which one are you? Which category are you in? And, and by the way, it is right for good Christians who have dis despaired of themselves and have trusted in Christ. You don't need to feel bad about yourself when I ask that question. Which category are you in? You should be confident if you are in Christ to say, I'm in that category of the gospel. You don't need to be afraid when a preacher asks that question. You should be happy to say that God has claimed you for his own.
you also see here that, that God gives everyone what they want. You think about that. If by his grace you desire him and you seek him and you want glory and honor and immortality and you want peace and, and righteousness and you are patient and well-doing, if this is your desire and aspiration, then he gives you that desire in the end. You see, you, you have that godly and eternal life that you want. But if you reject the gospel and if you refuse to turn to the Lord, choosing rather to pursue sin and wickedness, God gives you over to those things as well. Such a person who refuses God now will never have any hope of his blessedness in eternity. God gives us what we want. So you see here, Paul's laid it all out. There are only two ways for anyone to live. Either you trust the gospel with your just and right judgment falling on Christ and His cross, or you live in sin and you devote yourself to wickedness and lust and you take your own punishment upon yourself and live forever in wrath and fury. Paul says there's no third way to go. To the presumptive moral religious person of verse 3, Paul is declaring to them that they cannot live in sin and also trust in their outward motions of religion. They, they can't, I mean, very specifically, if we want to speak directly to them, the Jews that he is speaking to cannot say, well, I'm an ethnic Jew and I'm a part of the covenant that God has made with Abraham and Moses and all of my forefathers, and so it doesn't matter what I do because God has said that as long as I look the right way that he's going to save me. And Paul says, that's not how it works. They cannot suppose... That's simply because they have gone to the right church get, that God will judge them well in the end. I, I participated in a, a funeral service several years ago now, back in Hazelhurst, and I was presiding um, at the, the funeral service at the church, and another um, individual was presiding over the graveside service in the cemetery. We got to the cemetery. I had nothing to do with that part of it. It was, it was split pretty evenly. They just wanted me and this person to participate. And so we got to the cemetery, and they opened up their Bible, and they read Psalm 25, which you may remember parts of it say. Well, we read some of it this morning. Um, not 25, 24, excuse me. We did not read it this morning. Part of Psalm 24 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And the psalmist answers the question, well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, then he goes on to list a few more characteristics. And basically, it's the sinless person can ascend the hill of the Lord. And they read this passage from Psalm 24, and they closed their Bibles, and they said, aren't we glad that so-and-so right here in the ground did these things and is now happy with God? What blasphemy. It flies in the face of what God has declared in his word. We cannot hope 
Like that minister in that moment hoped for that body in the ground. We cannot hope that good works will deliver us from judgment. That church attendance or even church membership or that good deeds in the community or donations to charity or just good intentions from our hearts. We cannot suppose that these types of things will benefit us in the day of judgment. There's no extra credit for these types of things. You, you, you won't be allowed to enter heaven on the coattails of your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents. It's not how it works. And so this is why, this is why Paul says there's, there's only two types of people. And he brings it back down in verse, verse 11. This is why Paul essentially restates verse 6. In verse 11, just from a different angle. So in verse 6, God, he says that God will render to each one according to his works. And here in verse 11, he says, for God shows no partiality. A, a more literal translation might read, for there is no favoritism in the presence of God. That when you stand before him, According to his judgment, there is no partiality. Do not presume upon your status. It's not as if you get to the throne of judgment and God, God sees your last name on the roll and says, Oh, oh, well, this, this family, you're in. Come on. Doesn't matter what you've done. God doesn't grade on a curve. You know, it's not as if you have a handful of good deeds and, and so many good intentions that somehow can cancel out your wickedness and your sin. For the Jews to whom Paul wrote, they could expect no special treatment from God just because they belonged to that special chosen ethnic group of the Old Testament time. Essentially, we may say it is impossible to bribe this judge. There is no partiality with him. Nothing that will sway him apart from the works done by the one being judged. Remember verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Have we presumed upon his kindness and his grace? And do we think just because we, we sort of pray to prayer or name to name, we've joined a church, do we think that maybe we're going to get into heaven and be a part of God's family, that we're going to escape the judgment that is due to us for our sin? Do we think that we will escape just because we haven't felt it yet? Dr. Duncan says in the face of this, that instead of presuming upon God's kindness, he says we should seek God's kindness, plead for God's kindness, throw yourself at the feet of Christ, ask God for mercy, and he will grant it. He says, but don't presume on it. Don't live life thinking, well, everything will work out fine. Live life knowing that there is a judgment. And at that judgment, we'll take into account everything that you have ever done. And so make sure that your righteousness is not your own righteousness, but that your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Same thing we've done recently. I want you to, if you have your Bible open, I hope you do, just turn the page over to chapter 3 and be reminded of where we're heading. 
Chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We've got time before we get there, but basically he's saying, you can't earn the righteousness you need. Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord that there is righteousness available to us if we would trust and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But lastly, I want want to leave you with this impression. Do you see how Paul's argument and thoughts progress? You know, Don't presume on God's kindness, he has told us. His kindness is meant to lead to repentance. Don't rest in your works, he tells us here. But but by moving forward, we see that he's going to tell us to trust in Christ and the mercy of God in him. To change up a phrase we've used a lot. A clear, right understanding of sin will lead you to a fervent appreciation of grace. And that will lead you to a life of guilt-free godliness. Look at what God has done for us. You will not receive what is due to you according to your works. Because for all who have trusted in Christ, our judgment has fallen on Him. But that is not where it ends. He has set us free from sin and death and made us alive unto godliness and righteousness unto all of these things listed so that we can by patience seek after goodness and do good things that we can seek for glory and honor and immortality that we can move towards glory and honor and peace. Praise the Lord for His many kindnesses that He has given to us in His gospel. Amen. Father, for the sake of your Son, come and send your Holy Spirit to write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. We praise you and thank you for our Lord Jesus who has suffered in our place the judgment that we deserved, the wrath that was for us. Knit us more to him. Stir up our love that we may Praise Him and worship Him more fervently, more zealously. Oh Lord, would You receive glory and honor and praise for the marvelous gospel that You have worked that has maintained Your justice and Your grace. Be glorified among us, Lord, as You lead us in righteousness, as You walk us in godliness and train us for glory. Would You be praised and adored as all of these things come to pass in your good time and purpose. And we 